0: Hey guys, I'm Megan Barker. Welcome to Jammin' and Jammies. We are sitting down with some of our favorite music creators. They're going to share how they got where they are, as well as valuable insights into the music industry. You can watch the interviews online or tune into the podcast. And we also do a live stream every Sunday night. So make sure you check out jamminandjammies.com for more information. And today we are lucky enough to be sitting down with a jammy veteran, Mr. Marty Dodson. Marty's had over a hundred cuts, six number one singles, including... Billy Currington's Let Me Down Easy, My Favorite Must Be Doing Something Right, and Kenny Chesney's Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven. We have so much ground to cover, so let's dive in and welcome them. Hi, Marty. How are you doing?
1: I'm great. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for being here. Do you want to just start by telling everyone where you're from and how you got into music?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I kind of have a, a different sort of story. I grew up in Nashville, so I've lived in Nashville since I was five years old. And I was really intimidated by every, you know, my memories growing up where everybody that came to work on our air conditioner or install our cable or anything like that was trying to be in the music business. And and my parents were not in the music business. And so I didn't know anybody that was succeeding at it. So I kind of was intimidated and I decided I would just go to college, get a degree and, and do something else, uh, even though that was kind of a childhood dream of mine was to be a a songwriter. I was, I was the guy who would always like open up the CD or a record and, and look at the liner notes and see who wrote the songs and, you know, try to, to look up those people. And I was just fascinated with that process, but I kind of just put that on hold, went to college, got a degree in psychology, uh, which you really can't do much with at all. <laughs> and so, I, uh, but I worked for 10 years as a youth minister. Wow. Um, and I just, I kind of, um, just fell into that and then I was offered a job doing that when I was in college and then I got offered a job doing that when I got out of college and then you know it just it just kind of 10 years went by and I woke up one day and was like oh th- this is not really what I chose to do it was just a a thing that was convenient and, and I was good at it I guess but I read a book called uh, what color is your parachute that that helps you find your passion and find how to make a profession out of your passion. And that book was really pivotal to me because after I read it, I thought, well, if I could have been anything I wanted, I would have been a songwriter. And so I guess in my thirties, I had a little more courage to, you know, to pursue it, even though I didn't have any connections. And I knew one guy named Gordon Payne, who was in the crickets. He took Buddy Holly's place. And so, uh, my dad had been building computers for him, and I knew that he was in the music business. So I got my courage up one day and I just asked him if he would listen to some things that I had written. And he did. it. And he liked one of my ideas called Weekend Cowboy. Hmm. And it was about a guy who works an office job, and then on the weekends, he dresses up in jeans and a hat and goes out and dances. I
0: love that.
1: And so he um, helped me make that song more commercial. And then uh, he took me in the studio. To demo it and I had never seen how that happens and so he plays we had a cassette of our our work tape and he played that cassette and the musicians it didn't even seem like they were paying that much attention and then they all went into their isolation booths and they played our song and I was like whoa how does that happen you know and and I was just from that moment I think I was just hooked and I, I thought man I've got to figure out how to do this so um, I, I think I bugged Gordon to death trying to get him to keep writing with me, and he wrote for Starstruck at the time, and so he, he kind of started pawning me off on some of his friends that were beginners as well, and one of those guys was a guy named Terry Vonderheide, and Terry um, and I just kind of hit it off, and we wrote really well together, and shortly after we started writing... Um, Terry got offered a a staff writing deal with Kim Williams and Sony kind of a co-venture and so Kim and Sony got to hear everything that Terry and I were writing and I'm really grateful that he remained loyal to me and kept writing with me but uh, after I had written probably 20 songs with Terry after his after he got his deal Kim approached me and said hey you know I love what you guys are doing I'd love to uh, work with you too. And, and so it just kind of organically led to me getting that first staff writing deal. And then Kim was a, I mean, he was a hall of fame songwriter, you know, ASCAP writer of the year, many years, and just an amazing mentor. So I, I got to spend four or four and a half years with him uh, really mentoring me and teaching me how to write.
0: Incredible. Well, it sounds like a lot of this stemmed from your buddy, Gordon too. Thank God for Gordon
1: exactly they if, if gordon had not started that ball rolling it never would have happened
0: that's amazing did you ever think when you were you know working inside with your psychology degree that you'd be sitting in a room with a wall full of awards behind you
1: For no sure. I, you know and, and it i my kids jokingly say that's my shrine to myself but it it's actually more to me it reminds me that anything's possible you know because i I just never could have imagined that I would, you know, get to do the things that I've done or go the places I've been growing up. I, my family didn't really travel. Our biggest vacation growing up was we went to see my aunt in uh, Atlanta and that was our biggest, you know, that's the most I had ventured out of Tennessee. So to think that because I write songs, I've been, um, To writing camps in Sweden. And I've been, you know, just all over the earth uh, playing my songs or writing and that kind of thing. It's just, it's opened up worlds to me that I never even knew existed.
0: That's amazing. You mentioned, you know, signing and and writing with Kim Williams. Can you tell everyone a little bit about what your first publishing deal looked like?
1: Uh, You mean like the financial part of it or... Um, Well,
0: whatever you're comfortable sharing, but just maybe how the process is. I know that a lot of our followers are probably coming into looking at their first publishing deal. You know, what did the whole process look like? When did you get a lawyer involved? Finances, if you're comfortable talking about it. Um, Mm -hmm. And also, you know, how long ago that was and how the industry has changed since then.
1: Okay. Yeah, I mean, it was, I guess it was around 96 when I got that first deal. Um, And on paper, it was a really bad deal in some ways for for me in that you know so there were some standard things like non-standard things like they recouped from my ask my rider's share of my ASCAP which is not a common thing Um, so it was set up very much to try to you know help them hedge their bets on this beginner you know and and my draw or my advance was $866 a month which I had three kids at the time. So that, you know, that was not enough to live on, but it, you know, it allowed me to do it maybe two thirds time. Um, And then the, the way it basically worked was, you know, Kim uh, had a plugger. uh, They paid for my demos and then uh, half of the demo cost was recoupable. All my draws were recoupable and that kind of stuff. So, you know, as I, because my draw was kind of low, Um, I didn't owe them a ton of money, you know, by the, even four years into it. And it kind of allowed them to keep me. I think one of the things people forget to look at these days is that if your draw is high, you, you've got to pay all that back, Yeah, you know? And so it's not like it's, it's a salary that, oh, I'm making a hundred thousand is better than making 20,000. You know, if you, a lot of times, if you can get by on 20,000, or 12,000, it's better than having a high draw because then you can recoup. And once you recoup, then you have catalog to sell and that kind of thing. The other thing that, that was kind of rough about that first deal was that I didn't have any publishing. So it was not a co-pub deal at all. It was a hundred percent Kim and Sony had my publishing. So they, they split it 50, 50 and I had none, which meant that when I did have hits, it was a lot harder for me to, recoup because i didn't have any of that publishing share that was going toward recouping um but as it you know looking back on it i would have paid kim williams for five years (laughs) of mentoring you know so so the fact that i got my demos paid and and those other things i don't begrudge him that deal at all in fact when i got when i did have my first hit in that catalog which was uh while you love me by rascal flats it recouped that whole catalog so so that was a good thing.
0: So your first cut was a Rascal Flat song?
1: Not my first cut, but my first hit. Your
0: first hit. Okay. Well, what was your first cut?
1: Um, I believe it was Ricochet, the band Ricochet. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. I had a song with them called Can't Stop Thinking About That. And it actually went to 37 on the chart. So I guess that could be my first top yeah. 40 hit. Um yeah. but and then I had my second cut was um on Lone Star's Lonely Grill album, which sold like 4 million copies because of the Song Amaze. So several of those plaques on the wall came from that album cut.
0: Yeah. Well, how far into your publishing deal did you start getting cuts?
1: Um, it was nail-bitingly far into my, my deal. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, in year three, Kim and I had discussions of like, Uh, okay, we're going to give you one more year kind of thing, you know, because it was not happening. But in year four, I started getting some of those things. I think while you love me was probably in the fifth year of that. So it, it was after several years. I think that's another thing. People kind of have an unrealistic expectation that, you know, once I get my deal, I'm just going to start getting cuts and it's all, you know, it's going to be easy. And I think that's really when the work begins, because then, you know, you you have a lot to learn and a lot to figure out after you get that first deal. And then hopefully you're being mentored and, you know, you have somebody help and you make your songs more commercial and that kind of thing. But it takes a while.
0: Yeah. What would you say is the best piece of advice you got early on? Was it from Kim?
1: Oh, I'm sure he told. I mean, he had so many pieces of advice for me. I'm trying to think if there's any one specific thing. I think, you know, he would always say, um, write your truth. And I, th- I think that was important, you know, because I I would try to write things that were like something on the radio or, you know, somebody that I wanted to emulate. And he was like, man, you, you're better when you just write your truth, you know, instead of trying to copy somebody else or be someone you're not. And, you know, and that stuff even applies to me today, because I think, like I didn't, I grew up in Nashville in the suburbs. I didn't go grow up on a farm with tailgates and, yeah. you know, all, all that stuff. And so when I try to write that stuff, it feels inauthentic, you know, and, and if I'm writing with someone that grew up that way, then I can kind of help them shape the lyric and that kind of thing. But that's just not my story, my truth. And, you know, not that he, he didn't mean by that only write things that you've personally done – but I think he meant, you know, right things that you can speak to authentically.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, and now it's funny to hear you talk about having a mentor because you've been a mentor to me and to so many other up and comers now in Nashville. Um, you started something called Songtown. Do you want to just talk a little bit about what Songtown is?
1: Yeah. So Clay Clay Mills, who's a hit songwriter uh, and I were co-writers for a long time. And one day we were having coffee before we, we wrote. And I had run into this woman who had come to Nashville, met a, a, someone who called themselves a publisher who told him that her, told her her songs were great. And she signed away all her publishing, paid them $5,000 and got two cheap, not very good demos in return. And so Clay and I were talking about that and asking ourselves, why does that stuff happen? So we started researching what was available online for songwriters. And we saw that most of the stuff on there was by people with no track record of success. You couldn't even tell who ran most of the websites. And they were all this hype, like used car salesman kind of things of like, you know, get your songs in front of Nashville producers and, you know, make you know become a hit writer you know turn pro and all these kinds of things and we're like man the the reason people fall for that stuff is because they're so desperate for somebody to 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 like their music but also because there's just this whole underbelly of scammers who you know failed in the music business and so now they're trying to do, do something to make money off of gullible people a lot of times and so we jokingly said, well what if we started a site where we tell people the real problem is your songs are not good. It's not that the, you know, people don't get you or that, you know, you haven't met the right person yet. It's that your songs are not good enough yet. And here's how to make them better. And so we th- were like, well that's the worst, you know, business plan ever to, to tell people their songs are not good. But we started doing daily blogs on Facebook. We created a page and we started doing daily blogs about how um, demos work, you know, how that process works, how much it should cost, what's kind of a reasonable range and way for it to happen, how publishing works. And then it, we kind of grew this community of people that were really hungry for the truth about how things work and to get away from the hype and all that kind of stuff. And so we, then we started doing some teaching blogs about You know, here's how to make your songs better. Some things you know to look for in your songs when when you're rewriting, and it just kind of organically grew into this community of people that wanted to get better, bought into our idea that you know we always tell people that the answer to any problem you're having with your music is that you need to write a better song. You know, so if I'm pitching my songs and nobody's taking them, I need to write better songs. It's not that I'm you know something's faulty in the pitching process, and so just taking that responsibility of let's just keep getting better was kind of our motto. And so then people said, well, you guys should teach classes. So we started teaching some online classes and it just kind of organically grew into this community. So we created a website. Um, and now it's, it's a, you know, we've had over 10,000 people take our classes and that kind of stuff, but it, it's just all founded on the idea that if you want to succeed, find people who've succeeded at doing what you're trying to do, and, you know, get mentoring, get, you know, learn from those people, how things really work and, uh, you know, and kind of devote yourself to continued growth as a writer.
0: Yeah. And it's, so uh, I mean, what's it like for you to see some of your students, if you will, go on to get publishing deals and have success?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, somebody I mentored, I just recently had a Tim McGraw single and another person's about to sign a, a Songwriting staff deal with Big Machine, and we've helped. I think we well, lost count, but I think it's sixteen or seventeen people get staff writing deals, and then, mm-hmm. you know, more and more uh, we're having people say, "You know, I've got this single out," you know, and and Songtown people wrote it, and it's just really gratifying. It's it it lets me see what Kim felt, you know, when I started having some success. So that's cool, kind of a full circle thing.
0: Yeah, really, I'm sure he'd just be. Totally proud of everything that you've done, um, and now you're also a publisher. You've started your own publishing company with Clay. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that as well, and what that's been like?
1: Yeah, so that that's been a um, you know kind of I guess in some ways is is also the the outgrowth of Kim working with me. Uh, in that you know since him, I I never had a publisher. You know I had some great publishers, but they they never were mentor publishers, you know, they were, uh, you know, run by song pluggers or uh veteran publisher kind of things. And, you know, and and they could pitch songs well, but they, they really didn't, weren't able to mentor me. And so, you know, as Clay and I've started helping, I think when we passed 10 people that we helped get staff writing deals, other places were like, you know, we're training these people to write and then we're just sending them off <laughs> to someone else, you know, and, and why not <laughs> Why not create a publishing company and, um, you know, and sign some of those people ourselves and mentor them and that kind of thing. And so, you know, the philosophy with Vibe City also is, you know, every single writer that comes into Vibe City gets a 50-50 co-pub. They have better deals than I still have with my publisher financially and that, you know, we want it to be writer friendly instead of publisher friendly and we want it to set those writers up to succeed so in vibe city instead of uh you know big draws and things like that we're we're helping people um keep that balance low so that if they have one hit it recoups their whole catalog um i won't get into fine details but like they get there's reversion clause so you know if if you're a vibe city writer and you had one big hit and you and you leave Vibe City, you could sell that catalog. You know, you're you're part of the catalog and and be kind of set up for life, um, mm-hmm. instead of owing a publisher, you know, two hundred fifty thousand dollars that you have to pay back.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that. You're you're changing the game by having these. I don't know. I guess it's because you're a writer, starting your own publishing company for what a writer would want and what a writer needs. Um, what do you look for in a prospective writer that you're thinking about signing?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I, th- I think number one is willingness to learn and you know, commitment to growth, You know because um, Kim, one time there, there was a guy that came in our office and Kim would take time for anybody. Yeah. This guy just walked in off the street and wanted to play us a song. So he played the song, Kim gave him a few pointers and his response was, Well, everybody back home loves this song. I'm not going to change oh, it.
0: Yeah.
1: And and Kim said, Well, then why did you come in here? You know, and he said, Well, I was hoping you could get it, you know, placed for me somewhere. And Kim basically, he told this long story, but he basically said, You know, you came to me with your cup full. And I can't help you if your cup's full. He said, You know, if you come to me with your cup empty, I can I can give you some things that'll help you, but but you seem to know it all and so he said you know if, if everybody loves it back home I'd go back home and play it because it's not going to work here you know
0: wow that's amazing so uh just a willingness to learn then I think I think that's wise I was just going to ask what your piece of advice for songwriters would be I guess that would be part of it then is there anything else
1: well um yeah I guess I mean I, Back to your question of what we look for, I think it's it's people that are willing to learn, but it's it's also people that have a unique way to say things, you know. So we we don't want things that sound like songs that are on the radio, you know. We want things where we go, "Wow, I'm not hearing anything like that on the radio." It Should we? I should be, you know. So we're looking for that kind of thing too. But I, you know, I think in in regard to advice for songwriters. I say, you know, we all, when I started out, I had demoed 20 songs when I got my deal with Kim that, that I had paid for the demos and I thought they were great. And I had been pitching them with no success, you know? So when I got the deal with Kim, I went in, you know, I said, can we listen through these 20 songs that I have and see which ones you want to pitch? And so we listened to all 20 songs and, he said, Marty, I'm not gonna pitch any of those songs. Wow. And I was devastated. And I said, why not? And he said, I'll tell you what, write for me for a year. We'll listen to those songs again. And if you still like them, we'll pitch them. Wow. And so we I did in a year, I came back and I and I was like, oh my goodness, those songs are horrible. And I went to him, I didn't even put him through listening to him. I went to him and I said, Why did you sign me? based on songs like this. And he said, well, you had some unique things to say. And I thought you showed a lot of potential, but I knew those songs weren't ready. And I think almost all of us, we have such a hard time separating ourselves from our music. It's our baby. Yeah. And we we really have a tough time being objective about how good it is. You know, I don't know how many times I've heard my songs are better than the ones on the radio. And then I listen to the songs and I don't even understand the song, you know, that kind of thing. And so I think the one of the most important things you can do is to try as much as you can to be objective about yeah. your music and, you know, play it for people, but not just people that are going to tell you, oh, you're awesome. Like your grandma or something like that, you know, but play it for people or, or like you do, you know, play it at a show and you see which songs people respond to and which songs people kind of, get up and go get a beer during and and that kind of thing. You know, so I think that's hugely important is is just learning to be objective Mm -hmm. and being okay with not being good enough yet. You know, if, if you can acknowledge I'm not good enough yet, then that kind of leads you to the next step of like, okay, how can I become good enough? And that's where I think it's so important just to find mentors or people that are a little farther down the road from you that can can guide you and help you uh, and, and can give you honest feedback. Because I think without that, you know, if, if you're only dealing with people that are saying, your songs are awesome, I'm going to get them all these places, then you're not trying to get better because you think you've arrived, you know. So I look at songwriting as a journey that I'll never reach the end of. You know, there's always things to learn. Um, I'm, I'm continually I'm much more a lyricist than a melody person, so I watch Clay's videos about melody because I learn from them. Yeah. And Then I go try to incorporate those things in my songwriting. So, you know, I just th- I think those things are important. If you can gain perspective on on your music and and be objective about it, and then if you can uh, kind of acknowledge where you are and then make a plan to improve, that's those are the most important things.
0: Yeah. I love how you mentioned playing songs live and getting feedback on it. I, I can't tell you that how much I missed that in 2020 because I was still writing so much, but I didn't realize how much I measured a song by getting an audience reaction. I really did. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: it's, and it's hard, you know, I, I was not a really a performing songwriter until uh, much, until I started having hits. Yeah. Uh, because I just didn't feel like I was that good at it and then you know once I had hits people wanted to hear them and and that kind of thing so I learned how to do it a little bit better but the uh, you do learn so much and before early in my career I wrote a song called The Shadow of a Man and it and it was I think still one of the best songs I've ever written and it was about a boy that sees his dad going into the house across the street and he sees through the window, his dad embracing the woman that lived across the street. And so forever after that, uh, his dad was a shadow of a man to him. Yeah. And so I played it for Kim and he said, that's one of the best songs that'll never get cut that I've ever heard. And I said, why won't it get cut? And he said, well, because do you want to stand up? You know, does Luke Bryan want to stand up on the stage every night and, and tell everyone that his dad cheated on his mom because people are going to believe that, you know? And so they're going to go to his dad and go, Hey, is this story true about you? You know, but because I didn't perform, I didn't have that kind of feedback. I thought, Oh, this is an interesting story, you know, and, and it is a powerful story, but it, it was just one that wasn't going to work commercially because, you know, that's not what someone wants to get up on a stage and sing.
0: Well, do you play the song now?
1: no i should i should go back and and dig it up probably but and maybe i could make it into a third person song you know instead of a, a first person song where it happened to the singer you know
0: that's such a frustrating thing about songwriting is i don't know how long ago you wrote it but you know if it's a 20 year old song you could still edit it and change it and it's never ending
1: yeah absolutely
0: who are your songwriting heroes kim obviously is probably one
1: Kim would be one, you know, I think Dolly Parton is my, I was talking to my wife the other day. I think if I, if I could pick anyone to write a song with, it'd be Dolly Parton. Just a, I think she's a brilliant songwriter, but I love the honesty in her songs. I mean, they feel very authentic. They feel very conversational for the most part. And when I hear them, I believe them. But then I also think she's just a beautiful human being in that, you know, she does so much for other people.
0: Absolutely. I wonder with somebody like her, she is just so authentic. If that can be learned, if that can be taught, or if it's just something that's kind of God given, maybe it's somewhere in the middle. I don't know.
1: Yeah. I think it's some of both, you know, like if you looked at those 20 songs I had in the beginning, you would predict I would never write a hit song. Yeah. You know, And, and I only did write a hit song because I learned how to write a hit song, you know? And I think you know, I think you have to have a little bit of ability, but I think that hard work and uh, mentoring can help you pass a lot of more talented people. You know, there was there were people I wrote with in the beginning that were way more talented than I was musically, but they didn't want to work as hard as I worked, you know, and they didn't sacrifice what I sacrificed to do it and and that kind of thing. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that it can be taught, you know, if you have a little bit of ability, you can learn um a lot and and have a lot of success
0: as long as you're willing to learn yeah i read somewhere that dolly said no to being a judge on you know one of those american idol shows or something and they asked her why and she said who am i to judge anybody and i that stayed with me i mean i don't think there's anything wrong obviously with being a mentor to somebody but she didn't want to pass judgment and i really admired that i thought that was yeah
1: i do too and i think other people i I love the music of carol king james taylor (laughs) yeah um I was a huge John Denver fan. I loved uh, his music. Yeah. Um, you know, but I'm just a fan of great music. I, I like a lot of uh, Bruno Mars music because yes. I, I think it's just brilliant writing, you know? So I'm a fan of great music, wherever it, where it comes from.
0: Yeah. Me too. Me too. All right. Final question. Do you remember the first time or um, the, the coolest time that you heard your song on the radio?
1: Uh uh, yeah, I mean, that, that first single, Can't Stop Thinking About That, I was driving down the road one day over near Radnor Lake, if you know where that is in Nashville, um, and I heard the intro come on, and I thought, I think that's my song, you know, and, and I have I had to pull over, and I actually sat in a church parking lot and, and just turned it up as loud as it would go and cried, because it, it had been... Um, I guess since I started, since I quit my job and I started songwriting, I guess it had been six years, maybe, you know, two years. And then I got my deal. And then about the fourth year, I got that cut. And
0: a long time,
1: yeah, it was a long time and a, and a lot of struggle and, and feeling like, am I good enough? Am I ever going to have, you know, and I had people, um, my ex mother-in-law would, every time I saw her, she would say, have you sold any songs yet?
0: <laughs>
1: and in a way that m- let me know she didn't approve of what I was doing and she didn't think I was going to make it, yeah. you know? And so it was just this sense of relief of like, Oh my goodness, finally I have a song on the radio And and I just thought through all the things I'd been through to get there and that kind of thing. And, So that was a very, very cool moment. Uh, The the first time I ever heard one of my songs live, I think was probably Rascal Flats when they, you know, they really took off and I got to go to one of their concerts and, and to, to see the audience singing like, you know, 20,000 people singing that song was a pretty powerful moment too. Unbelievable.
0: Okay. Wait, quick follow-up question. So what kept you going? I mean, can you put it into words? I I suspect it's just something like a fire inside you, but can you explain what kept you going for six years?
1: You know, people ask me that a lot. I I think um, I'm very competitive. Are you? Uh, Yeah, I am. Somebody who,
0: who helps everyone and you're trying to be a mentor, you're competitive, really?
1: Well, I've learned to temper it, you know, and, and to, to channel it in, in the, hopefully in the right ways. Um, but, I, you know, I think there was one point in, in my journey where I guess about three years in, I got, uh, there was a friend who kind of had an intervention lunch with me and and he said, man, I know you guys are struggling financially. And he offered me a job with his company writing. Uh, it would be writing um, instruction manuals for small appliances. So like toasters and things like that. And it would be, it was making more money than I had ever made in my life. It would have, you know, retirement. It would have benefits, insurance and all that stuff. It's tempting. It was very tempting. and And I think at that point I had to decide, okay, are are you a hundred percent in on this? Do you believe you can do it, or do you not? you know and and the I guess the way I looked at it was did i that was the moment I had to decide to bet everything I had on myself or bet everything I had on security wow. and And I think that's one of the most profound choices I've made in life in, in that you know when we look at it, there's really not that many things in life that are secure. You know, our health is not secure, you know, our, our finances, things we own, we we can feel secure sometimes, but at the end of the day, I think you, you have to just trust that that you can do something and go do it. And that's kind of what I did. I, I put a nail in the end of the, our hallway by my bedroom door that I was going to put my first gold record on
0: wow. and it
1: stayed there for four or more years, just oh an empty gosh. nail.
0: That makes me tear up. That's really amazing.
1: But, you know, so I would do things like that to remind myself of that choice. You know, I did that the day that I declined that job. I thought, okay, I'm all in, you know, I'm putting the nail in the wall and, and I'm going to, I'm going to figure out how to make this happen. And I, th- I think just kind of, it was kind of a moment too, of just like, uh, jumping out of the airplane. Yeah. It's like, now you know, okay, here, here I go. You know, so I mean, I got to figure out how to get this parachute open yeah. and that kind of thing. And, and I, so I think it was kind of removing my um, plan B, yeah, other, you know, other things. Um, and and I, I see that a lot with other people, you know, and I and one of the things I I mentor people on sometimes is like, you know, who that want to do this full time is like, if there's something, if there's anything else you can do and be happy you might ought to go do that. Yeah. But if, if this is the thing that makes you happy and that you want, go for it, yeah. you know, and, and go all in on it and, and let go of the other, you know, the, the plan B's and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and I've had some people go, uh, I had a guy recently come back to me and say, you know, the best thing you ever told me was that, that piece of advice, because he said, my, my, fiance and her family were so stressed out about me being a songwriter and was I going to make it and what, you know, down the road, what's this going to look like and all these things. And he said, I found this other career that I'm really happy in. And I, and now I just write for fun and, and it's great, you know? Yeah.
0: And maybe that is the right move for some people. It's, it's got to be hard for you to be in that position where you're giving advice, life decision advice to people. So maybe it's good that you have that psychology degree after all. Have you, have you found a use for some of that knowledge?
1: Yeah, it's coming very handy. I, I had a publisher one time say, uh, we were sitting down to sign my deal and he said, well, you know, I'm, we'll, we're going to sign this deal, but don't be using that psychology stuff on me. And I said, <laughs> <"T-> too late.
0: <laughs>
1: and he's like, dang, what'd you do? you never know.
0: you'll never know. oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Wow, okay. well, I don't really see how it could get any better than that ending, so I just wanna leave it there um, unless there's anything else you wanted to add.
1: No, thanks for having me on. It's always good to talk to you.
0: yeah, it's good to talk to you too. Thank you so much. I really know that this is gonna inspire a lot of people and um everybody go check out. go follow Vibe city first of all cause I'm sure you guys have some big things planned and sign up for Songtown and uh, hopefully we can get jamming and Jamie's going again this year, fingers crossed. I hope so. Okay. Thanks, Marty. Take care,
1: Megan. Bye.
0: Bye.